The Data Skeptic Podcast features conversations with researchers and professionals working on problems or projects related to data science. So welcome back to the Data Skeptic Podcast. I'm here today with my guest, Shahid Shah. How are you doing, Shahid? Doing great. Uh, thanks for the invite. Uh, looking forward to talking about uh, big data in healthcare. Yeah, me too. So I'll give you a quick uh, intro. Um, you are currently the CEO of Netspective Communications. Do I have that right? That is correct. And in addition to a long career of many C-level and executive type positions at a lot of places, you're also currently writing three blogs, shahid.shah.org, uh, healthcareguy.com, and hitsphere.com as well. So you yes. seem like a pretty busy guy. In fact, I am, and uh, I do enjoy writing a lot these days, uh, sharing that knowledge. Uh, so much going on in uh, general IT, where I've spent, uh, of course, a lot of my time. Uh, but now in healthcare IT, pharma IT, bio IT, this area of biological, pharmaceutical, and uh, healthcare technology is just starting to explode. Uh, they're going to see the kind of growth uh, that we saw in financial and in retail, uh, internet commerce, et cetera. We've been in this world, you know, from general IT perspective for a while, but uh, uh, we ain't seen nothing yet as far as big data is concerned when you look at healthcare. That's excellent. Yeah, so uh, one of the ways I, I first found out about you is I enjoyed watching a panel that you moderated at the 2014 MIT Sloan CIO Symposium, and I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to go check that out. I'd highly recommend it. Um, the title of that was Transforming Digital Silos into Digital Care Enterprise. Um, so for me, the idea of liberating those silos and enabling the aggregation and potential data mining of a lot of healthcare-related databases and, and information is really exciting. And I would like to see where my uh, medical practitioners could see my complete medical history. And it seems like there's some potential for exciting innovations there. So I was wondering, what benefits to both patients and providers do you see coming out of some of the growth that we're anticipating in healthcare IT? I think, uh, as I mentioned, it's just, uh, it's just starting now. So we're uh, like in the first innings of, of, a, of a game where everybody's starting to fill each other out. They're getting the, getting the plans ready and things like that. But uh, where we've noticed a lot of effort in the past 30 to 40 years of healthcare, and it's, it's not commonly known, but right after the military, healthcare was one of the first users of computers back in the 50s uh, to crunch numbers like uh, figuring out uh, you know, what insurance costs are and things like that. So when you look at the payer community, such as insurance and other areas, they've been using IT for a while to try to integrate and figure out how to connect within uh, their insurance um, clients and, and us as patients, of course. So administratively, things have been around for a while. Uh, then we've seen administratively people managing financial data, uh, things like our basic medical records, like demographics, claims against insurance, again, around for a long time, maybe 30 to 40 years. Mm -hmm. Last 10 or 15 years, though, is, is where it's starting to get exciting, is we're starting to see clinical data coming in. And the big news for patients is going to be when what's called patient-generated uh, data comes in. And that is things like we're connected to a Fitbit, uh, you know, we get onto a Wythings Wi-Fi scale, et cetera. This is all generating a bunch of stuff uh, today that is more fitness-related. It might, you know, we might start to be putting in things like uh, what are our foods that we like, et cetera. However, um, the, the next piece that we're going to see in the next few years are uh, things that uh, are attached to our body and are doing things like pulse oximetry, uh, figuring out what our temperature is uh, at the beginning of the day versus the end of the day, uh, like body temperature, et cetera. So mm -hmm. getting a little bit more internal data that will then be used, can be used by technologies today or in the future to help 
do better diagnosis. So where we're seeing the most use uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the present and going forward is going to be better and better diagnosis because we have more and more information. And so moving away from financial and administrative, et cetera, to clinical, and then basic patient-generated data for remote access, uh, being able to see, for example, your physician on uh, Skype or mm -hmm. on uh, a uh, Google Hangout versus having to go into the office for routine kinds of things, obviously not uh, complex uh, things. That's all uh, starting to happen now. The big thing, and this is where data comes into play, is that bioinformatics, pharmaceutical IT, these are roughly new uh, concepts within the last five to seven years. And we're not quite sure how to handle these. You know, do we put them into our electronic health records and use them for diagnosis? Do we use them for drug discovery or use them from point of care? So there's a lot of discovery going on. If, if you know, big data scientists and uh, data scientists in general should see this as a major area for them to be uh, focusing on. While we're on the topic of patient-generated health data, I'll confess I wear a um, Basis watch, which is one of the many wearables. I try and be a vendor-neutral podcast that just happens to be the one I've worn, but there's Fitbit and plenty others. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been fun for me to track all that data and collect it and kind of look at it, but I don't think my doctor would appreciate me emailing him a spreadsheet of all my data, yet there's probably something useful there. Um, and I don't know if it's an engineer's choice to say what is or isn't important to save. And the idea of saving everything is probably a data deluge. So do you have any thoughts on where we meet in the middle, where researchers can come to and say what's important to save and how it should be saved versus what patients are looking to provide and what the infrastructure we need to build to support that is? Yeah, that's a great question because when we think about data, uh, we depending on who's asking the question and why we're talking about it, we always have a lens that we're looking at it from. So you and I today are looking at it from a patient lens, but if we were to move to the physician lens, physicians don't really care about that data as much right now because they're not paid to manage that data for mm -hmm. us. But you can imagine a world in which if we're paying insurance companies some money to, to manage our, uh, to pay for uh, bills as they pile up, it's possible that some of that insurance money through reimbursements could go to the doctor to say, hey, this is a diabetic and therefore you should, for this much money per month, uh, spend time looking at the A1C levels for this diabetic patient. Or this is a con congestive heart failure patient, you need to keep track of blood pressure and other things. So in general, doctors don't care and it is a data deluge and they're not, it's not that important. But when you look at disease specific conditions, the world starts to change. And when you look at uh, over the last few years, we've gotten a lot, enough data now, the insurers have this data, providers have the data, where primary monitoring of at-risk patients has enough value that you can monetize it. And once you can monetize it and you can pay physicians, then you don't have to worry because if your physician is getting paid to help manage mm -hmm. your um, uh, either your either your chronic condition or something from becoming a chronic condition, that's perfectly fine. For example, today you have a, a next generation business model such as what's called an accountable care organization where an insurance company or Medicare don't pay for every time you go to the doctor, but instead they pay a fixed fee to a doctor to say, hey, for Shahid and for Kyle in this community, you are being offered $10,000 a year. It's your job to do whatever monitoring you need to do, keep them out of the hospital, uh, you know, get them to do diagnostic and imaging when you need to. So when new business models catch up with new data, 
we're going to see a grand, grand new fostering of innovation. Until then, you're right. Nobody cares about the data that we capture, and you definitely don't want to be sending that spreadsheet uh, to your doctor. <laughs> uh, so that's one lens, right? The other lens is if you're a pharmaceutical company looking to do drug discovery, you may say, hey, whatever data you have, send it to me. I'll pay you for that data mm -hmm. so that I can use it to find new patients that I want to recruit or other things. Like there are many times uh, I live close to NIH, so all the time we see advertising on uh, buses or uh, other walls would say, hey, do you suffer from disease so-and-so? Please sign up for uh, this kind of uh, clinical trial. Well, if you've got the data, you don't have to ask anybody. You know who's suffering from what because the data is coming in. And some patients may want to give that freely because they care about health in general. Some patients say, don't touch, don't, don't grab, uh, don't contact me at all. Mm -hmm. But I think we're going to start to see new business models coming out. And that's really what the, what the cool thing is. We have a lot of data. The technology is there. We're starting to figure out how to aggregate it. We're not quite sure how to pay for it yet, uh, and that's what I'm looking at uh, uh, happening over the next few years. It's even more interesting. Yeah, it seems like there's a great opportunity there where, as you point out, something I'd never thought of, the doctor's being paid for monitoring, and the insurance company sees the potential to reduce their long-term costs by you know, maybe a short-term expense for some relatively inexpensive piece of hardware that a user would wear and submit data with. There's a win-win on, on all three fronts. Absolutely. And, and that's really the thing to look at is that don't look at data from one lens. Look at each uh, view of that data and say when the patient generates it, there's only one place you can actually get the data. It is from the patient. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you think about it, for thousands of years, patient data has always been available. I mean, even the earliest folks, what did they do? They ask you a question, they observe, and then they write things down. That's patient-generated data. Now, uh, observations, which are the, uh, the time-honored, tried-and-true tradition of how you get data from patients, is fraught with danger, right? It can, mm -hmm. it can only give you so much. This other non-observational uh, but, uh, uh, but uh, um, um, quantified kind of data, uh, structured data that's coming out of these devices, they are, in general, high volume but pretty trustable because there's no way to get them wrong, per se. Now, because they're high volume, this is where we need extra technology to figure out where's the needle in the haystack? What do I need to care about? Uh, for example, I, I, we worked on a project a couple of years ago uh, on an epilepsy-specific electronic health record solution, which had an embedded device that was surgically implanted into epilepsy patients. And then uh, there was a wireless monitor that took the implanted device put it onto the wireless, and then uh, it, this was a couple of years ago, so the USB stick was used mm -hmm. uh, to pull data off of that wireless device, put it into your computer, and then send it to your physician. Now, the physicians, the, you know, the, the neurologists who would be looking at this, has no clue what to do with uh, continuous data coming from days and days worth of uh, your brain waves. Mm -hmm. What's he supposed to do? Now, so the project we worked on was you had to get new visualization models out. You had to put new uh, data analysis techniques in to figure out, um, and this was measuring um, seizures and sort of trying to do seizure prediction models to say, if certain things were happening during the day, what is the likelihood of you having a seizure because epilepsy patients have seizures that are not predictable at all in most sure. cases? So if you think about that problem, that's a real problem for millions of patients going through all kinds of these kind of conditions. That's a big data problem. We're dealing with gigabytes per hour. It doesn't wow. get any bigger than that, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, and that's from one patient. Imagine 
tens of thousands uh-huh. of patients, a gigabytes per hour, the, the numbers add up. So think about that scenario is if you're a if you're a data scientist, what's unique here? Enormous volumes of data. It's coming in pretty rapidly, but more importantly, we don't know what to do with it. So we've got all this data sitting there. I mean, for months we sat around saying, what do we do? How do we visualize this in a way to give this to a physician? And that's really what's uh, most interesting here. You know, when you're working with retail data or financial data, those the quantities just don't add up as fast. Mm-hmm. They are big data when you do it in the aggregate. But for any single individual, their consumer data, what their buying patterns are, et cetera, are tiny. But for any single patient in healthcare, their data is monstrous if we were to go to bioinformatics right. or pharmaceutical kind of data. And we need as many smart brains as we can get to come into this field. Yeah, it's one of the biggest of the big data problems, I think. It is, absolutely. So there's a part of me that would like to, you know, if, as you were mentioning, you see um, promotions asking people to come contribute data and participate in studies. There's a part of me that would love to volunteer whatever data I have available if it could advance medical science or you know, maybe help prevent a disease that one of my ancestors died from. But the flip side of that is is privacy. You know, privacy is a concern in every industry. Healthcare is certainly no exception there. And it, it might be fair to claim that some of the privacy we have in healthcare could be due to security through obscurity in that systems today are a lot are paper-based, not everything's federated or talking to each other. And it seems like there's a trend moving away from that where we're going to have more accessible data and more um, referential integrity between different systems and different offices. Um, it, but it seems like at the same time, IT organizations who are helping to provide that infrastructure are going to face new challenges regarding privacy. Do you think we're poised to face these or are there ways that people need to take a careful look at that? Yeah, I think we all do definitely need to be careful uh, in the in, in this era where ultimately we the moment something is electronic, you have no control over it, and uh, data spills are fairly routine and fairly common in general, and then even yeah. in healthcare they are. So privacy, I, again, if you think about it, privacy writ large, we are all scared. Yeah. But if you think about it in a little bit narrow sense and say, well, what is it about the privacy that I'm most worried about? In the case of mental health, for example. Uh, there are things that we still, as a, as a, um, even as an enlightened uh, community mm-hmm. in America and around the world, uh, certainly the first class world, um, you see that we still care if someone went to the doctor for mental health. Like if I broke my leg and my leg got fixed, I'm done. What's the what do what do I care who knew yeah, I broke my leg? Yeah. But if somebody finds out that I went to go see a uh, a mental health professional, just the just that word, just that statement alone, not knowing why you went, etc. Now all of a sudden, a potential employer, uh, somebody looking to give you a loan, etc., starts to think twice. So you have to say to yourself, what kind of physician am I visiting? What kind of data are they capturing? And before you choose a physician, and this is how you tell whether we actually care about privacy or or, or are we just using it as talking points Mm -hmm. is, if you do not choose a physician because of the way that they manage and uh, uh, safeguard your records, then shame on us, Mm -hmm. right? If we, so like today, if I go and say that I'm gonna choose Dr. Smith, am I talking to Dr. Smith? You know, how are you storing your data? Uh, do you you keep it in a file cabinet that's unlocked? We never ask these questions. So in essence, in the in the written record world, we didn't care. We never asked these kind of questions. We just mm-hmm. assumed that there was privacy because uh, we never thought there wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But never in the digital world, and this is not about big data or anything. In the digital world, you never assume privacy because it's so dangerous. Yeah. What you want to do though is you want to hold people responsible 
for the kinds of data you're giving them that you think should not get out. Try not to just say, well, I want to protect all my data. If I don't get all my data protected, um, then I'm not going to share anything. And that, that actually puts you in greater harm. It puts us all in greater harm because there's a lot of harmless data that we should not mind um, sharing, but there's a lot of harmful data. It used to be, for example, 10 years ago uh, that uh, AIDS records were not uh, kept as confidential as they are today, mm -hmm. but today they are. Same thing with mental health records. Um, and this is why you see, for example, especially the veterans who are coming back with uh, post-traumatic stress, and you see PTSD mm -hmm. being changed from PC PTSD to PTS. Why? Because there's a, there is a, a idea that a disorder never gets fixed, but a, but a syndrome, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress itself, you came in, you got fixed, just like a broken leg. You know, there's no broken leg syndrome um, forever. Right. It's just broken leg, you get it fixed, and you're done. So there are things that we have to fix in medicine, in healthcare, that have nothing to do with privacy of data, et cetera, that will ease the privacy concerns. If mental health has continued to be a stigma in society, and the release of medical data around mental health um, causes privacy concerns, then all we're going to do is never share anything with our mental health professionals, right? right. Electronically, which yeah. is bad, which yeah, is very. absolutely bad. So that's the kind of danger. Let's not treat privacy as a black and white. Mm -hmm. There are tons of shades of gray, and let's figure out which areas are the most damaging and the most concerning and treat those with um, an enormous amount of concern, but other areas with kid gloves so that, so that medicine can move forward. So there is a... There are multiple camps uh, in here. There are schools of thought that say, you know, all electronic data is bad and be very, very careful, or all electronic data is good and keep it going. But as we know as engineers, um, you make a bomb, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. You make electronics, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. This is one of those areas. Tons and tons of data is coming in. Some good, some can be used for harm, but the only way to move forward is to not treat it all the same. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, considering for a while, wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of um, universal system where patients could control their, their data? So perhaps the fact that I went in for mental health or, you know, an AIDS test, I want my GP to be able to see that, but not necessarily my optometrist. And wouldn't it be great if I could control my own privacy on sort of a, a, a deeply accessibility level? But at the same time, I'm not sure that I'm knowledgeable or the general public has the time and the knowledge to manage that. So it's, it's almost like there, there's no owner of, of who should arbitrate what, um, what's private and what's not, who has access to what. Um, and I, I don't know where the responsibility lies. How, how do you see it? Is it uh, a doctor's responsibility to set at the time that data is created some sort of protection policy around it? Or is it IT's responsibility to be putting up the right firewalls? I'd say um, it's, it's a patient's responsibility to know what your records are, who did you give it to, uh, where did you leave it, uh, et cetera. So it's always, ultimately, our responsibility for our records. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll give you something that you, do, you won't commonly think about. When you walk into your physician's office and tell him your first name, last name, insurance information, et cetera, that's not just our medical record, right? Mm -hmm. That's his business transactional yeah. record that he has to charge insurance for so he can get billed for the service that he performed to us. Mm -hmm. So what we have to think about and say, the medical record that belongs to me is mine. It's my responsibility. And there are things, for example, you can use um, Microsoft Health Vault or related tools to manage your online record. But when you go see a doctor, 
Part of that is your medical record, but the other part is his business record. Mm -hmm. Do we as patients have a right to be able to tell Amazon how it maintains our purchase history? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Mm -hmm. Same thing with our doctor. How can we tell him, uh, this is how you need to uh, store my data that you tracked on my behalf for services? It seems easy, right? To say, hey, it's my my record. Mm -hmm. You just do what I say. But that's not true because it's his record too. In, in a digital world, in a paper world, I could say, give me my paper. You got nothing. You can't make copies of it, et cetera. What do we do in a digital world there, when there is no such thing as one record? And this is where the debate really falls down flat is we haven't thought through what this means going forward. What, are, what is a business record of the medical side? What is the clinical record? What is the bioinformatics part of this? What is the drug discovery part of this? What is the administrative part? When we start adding sophistication, and this is where data scientists actually do a good job, they can add a level of sophistication to our debate so that it's more meaningful. Just that one introduction of a business record versus a medical record now can say, okay, two smart people could sit down and say, all right, my name is part of the business record, but my uh, glucose level is not. Right. Okay, then that's okay. Unless the glucose record was submitted to the insurance company as a diabetic patient in order to get a different reimbursement. Yeah, <laughs> so it gets, yeah. it gets very tricky very fast. And you're right. It is our responsibility, but we have to recognize that when we're doing business with someone, part of that data is now their business record, not just our medical record. Yeah, absolutely. Um, from what I understand, there's a, a wide spectrum of size and capabilities in different healthcare providers. So, you know, on one extreme end, you have the most state-of-the-art hospitals with the best staff and the largest staff and the most specialists and presumably the latest and greatest technology. And on maybe the other end, the long tail of the distribution, you've got a single doctor in a rural office that serves a very small remote town and probably doesn't have all the right access and technology there. Um, So what strategies uh, for technology acquisition and rollout would you recommend for someone making decisions in the smaller provider space who maybe doesn't have the same budgets as the big world-class hospital, but is concerned about doing the best service for their patients. Yeah, the, what we're seeing is that there's a lot of attention being paid to that uh, primary care provider. In fact, yeah. the vast majority of care happens in those small clinics and uh, small practices out of the hospital uh, is where the most of the care happens. So cloud technologies, mobile and uh, the availability of these uh, uh, cheaper devices that doctors can give out on a reimbursed model are all good ways for them to start. So when you start and say, well, what are the cheapest ways for me to do it? Don't build something, for example, that you can only buy that has to be installed on a, on a, on a so-called data center inside your office. So right. the cloud has done for physicians exactly what it's done for everybody else. They just haven't moved as fast because in the cloud, there are rules around HIPAA and other areas which uh, are still catching up um, from a privacy perspective. So that's one area. The second area is look at common tools before you look at uh, specialized tools. So often in the medical community, people go after uh, specialized tools before they look at common tools. But what we notice is that if you look at um, the vast availability of software as a service capabilities, whether it's a project management tool or a customer relationship management tool, an accounting tool, et cetera, Many physicians believe that the special purpose tools in their industries will do a better job. And when you're looking at the top cream of the crop of uh, software, which is very expensive, that's true. Mm -hmm. But the guys on the lower end, you can actually say, 
I can use Microsoft Word for my medical records if I'm going to store them with uh, uh, Box.com, which is a HIPAA-compliant com uh, file sharing, mm -hmm. with um, some DICOM uh, cloud-based uh, DICOM imaging uh, environments for my uh, lab studies and things like that. Would you, if you step out um, uh, from your from a specialty-driven medical community-specific uh, software world and say, how can I use the common tool sets that are available, which are going to have better user interfaces, larger amounts of users, uh, potentially better security than the specialty providers, because if you only have a thousand customers versus a million customers, you'll have a different level of security. So if you're small, my, my general recommendation is absolutely look for those very well-known cloud providers, or if you have a local provider that is exceptional service, like they come out, they pick up phone calls, that's great, go after them. But for everything else, see what common tools across the general internet uh, work for you uh, before putting into place those specialty tools uh, for the same reasons we mentioned. As we talk about this spectrum of, of different tools available and also the exciting new opportunities of what might be coming in the future, there's a, a question of are we going to consolidate or are we going to fragment in terms of what's out there? And on one hand, consolidation sounds really good, right? Because it means there's more interoperability of systems. There's probably better access to data and more referential integrity. And I certainly like the idea that in 30 years, when I go in for a major surgery, that that surgeon has full access to anything that's ever happened to me that they feel might be relevant and they want to look at. But on the other hand, full consolidation means less competition. Probably there's not as much uh, innovation or price control. So... I feel like there maybe needs to be a balance between uh, consolidating and having standards and leaving enough room for innovation and new people to enter the marketplace. Um, how do you, what do you think is the right balance there? And what are the opportunities for someone to make a splash in uh, healthcare IT? Yeah, so in healthcare IT, one of the most common uh, things that people see are what are referred to as EHRs, or Electronic Health Record uh, Solutions. This is a group of software which primarily acts as a document repository for medical records in its, in its simplest form. If you look at this market, um, there are about 500 vendors in this space. Very, very uh, fragmented, mm -hmm. um, lots and lots of uh, competition today. What happened a few years ago was that the federal government put down a minimal set of standards, uh, those are called meaningful use criteria, uh, to establish and say, you know what, everybody doing this uh, if you want to get reimbursed uh, from the government for your medical services, you have to use this kind of software. And that software must do these 15, 18, 20 things at a minimum. Now, this was an industry that had never seen regulatory requirements in this fashion before. So they, you know, they, they were now uh, saying, okay, if I sell this, I have to have now a certified piece of software. Mm -hmm. So the first thing it did was, there's a general excitement that, hey, we might not have some uh, standardization here. That didn't really happen. The standardization around the kinds of things you were hoping for, which is data standardization, data consolidation, uh, better normalization of data, better har har uh, uh, harmonization of data, none of that really happened. Instead, what happened was the number of uh, providers who could meet certification dwindled a bit. Uh, new entrants came into this field because they saw a lot of money being put in by the government sure. for these reimbursements. And now we saw a push and pull. So more vendors came in. So where we thought there'd be consolidation didn't actually happen. It, it may happen still in the future. So consolidation hasn't yet happened, but innovation has dropped uh, like a rock in the um, 
in the EHR world mm -hmm. because the EHR vendors are so focused on just meeting minimum government regulations, which now, of course, the physicians have to follow. They have to follow a set of procedures mm -hmm. to use that software. So innovation has definitely been harmed in the EHR space, but that innovation has now gone in other spaces like remote care, remote diagnostics, these new uh, devices, which you're going to see with HealthKit and other things coming from Apple later this year mm -hmm. is another um, interesting aspect. With respect to consolidation, given how local healthcare is, until we see consolidation in the business side, you won't see consolidation in the software side. And here's why. So in, it'd, be, it'd be like um, saying, well, why is, it, well, why is it possible for us to be able to consolidate in other industries? Before you consolidate vendor offerings, you often see consolidation in the consumers that are using that software. So if we saw a lot of hospitals buying each other out, which of course there are happening, mm -hmm. if we see lots and lots of smaller um, providers being bought out by larger providers, that consolidation would happen in a natural course because larger companies don't want to see every one of their participants using different software. So consolidation isn't going to happen for the reasons we're thinking, which we were thinking. In fact, they're happening because uh, the government regulations are getting uh, more and more stringent. Mm -hmm. So some of the smaller vendors who potentially could have been the most innovative are going out of the market or they're getting bought out. Mm -hmm. The larger uh, vendors will not see much consolidation until their customers consolidate. So if you see large customers consolidating, then the larger vendors of those customers would consolidate as well. And that will be dangerous. Consolidation will be dangerous for two reasons. What we just talked about is innovation will dry up in the EHR space. Mm -hmm. It's going to have to go elsewhere. And number two, pricing uh, will start to get uh, um, a little bit uh, difficult because like even today, the largest vendors uh, that sell software are in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I mean, some of these, some of these smaller hospitals, uh, I wish donors to hospitals, if there's one lesson, you know, if there's anybody that donates to a hospital, you should ask that hospital to say, why aren't you using an open source electronic health record solution of which there are many offerings instead of spending tens of millions of dollars? It'd be like, it'd be like, you know, today we use R uh, instead of SAS when we can't mm -hmm. afford it. Right. Right. However, that is, and there are tools available like that in EHRs, except that world is not well known. So you have, you have EHR vendors, which awfully actually offer open source for free, languishing while their super expensive counterparts are being bought by hospitals and physician offices because they don't know that the others are available or they don't uh, trust that the service and support will be there. So this is not something that uh, um, the industry uh, can, can change. This is something that buyers have to do. So consolidation we saw in other industries happening because open source came in and caused a slight upheaval in the enterprise market. Unfortunately, we don't see that. That's why we're not going to see vendor-driven consolidation mm -hmm. as much as we see provider-driven consolidation driving the vendors. So yeah, it sounds like maybe there's a good opportunity for an open source EHR evangelist to come in here and help convince some of those uh, hospitals to take up these tools. Do you think that's a fair statement? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm actually the uh, chairperson of a um, of an organization called OSERA, the Open Source Electronic Health Record Agent. We are uh, we are a nonprofit who pulls together op different open source providers. We're in fact having a conference next month uh, about that. Is how do you find out about these things? How do you instead of spending fifty million dollars on software, spend fifty million on services that would pull together lots of different software and hardware and devices? So, uh, so open source. Evangelists in healthcare IT are sorely needed. Anyone who wants to write an article, jump in, talk about it. Uh, you can come to our events uh, or send me uh, uh, some requests. I can I can put your blog posts up on my blog as well. We absolutely would love to have more of that. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that conference for anyone who might want to attend. Yes, yeah, so this conference is taking place uh, right after Labor Day in Washington, D.C. It's the uh, OSERA third annual summit. And uh, OSERA, again, Open Source Electronic Health Record Agent, OSEHRA.org. OSERA.org basically is, uh, has taken uh, an enormous amount of software from the government, which was built for about $15 billion over the last 20 years. And uh, this is from the Veterans Affairs Department. Veterans Affairs, or VA, gave the software out to OSERA. OSERA now is the agent of this software and can pull in open source from anywhere certifies it, packages it up, tests it, um, et cetera, and sets up the process by which all this happens so that the Veterans uh, Affairs uh, Administration can now use this software uh, going forward. This way it saves money because open source, uh, of course, can save money. But more than money, it's really, OSERA wasn't created because of money. It was created because of innovation. Mm -hmm. When you do something inside the government or inside exceptionally large institutions, uh, a lot of cruft starts to settle and things get old and stale. And that's what, that's what was happening to some of this brilliant uh, EHR software that was sitting inside the government. So the idea was uh, through, you know, through folks like uh, Roger Baker and Peter Levin and others at, uh, at VA from a few years ago, they put this out in, into the open and it's now available to be used, updated, et cetera, completely free by any hospital who wants to use it. And there's a large service community that we're helping to build. So I'm doing three lectures, for example, in that uh, conference about what are the business opportunities, how do you use some of that data, how do you uh, begin to use this in a realistic environment. But we are so, you know, even though all this software is available, we don't have enough uh, health IT evangelists uh, that can promote it. And, and that's where I think anybody interested should definitely check out that conference. Yeah, that's really exciting for me personally. I, I think, and this is just my own bias, but open source is the way to go, not just for enabling it and creating you know, widespread use and standardization, but it gives me a certain level of comfort that that code's available. And if I'm really concerned about something, I can go review it and potentially even improve on it. Exactly. Yep. So one of the, uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about software for a minute, a big innovation that went on, I guess it's been 20 years ago, is when we moved, well, maybe re more recent, but we moved from the box product where you put software on a disk and you put it in a box and that went in a store to the more SaaS model where your software is on demand. So one of the great innovations that's come along there is we don't have what's classically been called the waterfall model of design, wherein we can live in this agile world, as they call it, that I'm a big fan of, that I can make uh, small changes, measure user reaction, maybe do a survey, get some feedback, or even just simple A-B testing to improve whatever my product is along the way. And if I'm doing some sort of consumer or client-facing web application, that's pretty easy. I would guess that in IT, there might, we might still be stuck in the, something like the waterfall model, where you're developing some software that might have to go on a specialized device or 
hopefully maybe it's mobile, but that'll go into a doctor's office that someone has to be trained on and there needs to be a user acceptance and you don't always have access to those users. It seems to me that it would be very difficult to really drive innovation. And if you're a, a product developer wanting to make a good product that's useful to your doctors, you might not have access to them, doctors and, and other healthcare providers. Um, do you see that as a challenge? And if so, how are some of the ways we could maybe break down some of those walls? Yeah, Kyle, I think you're right. It is a challenge. Um, uh, unfortunately, or just by happenstance, um, most software in health IT and uh, if you think about it, the, any regulated space, I mean, think about financials, think about medical devices, these are exceptionally regulated spaces. In regulated spaces, waterfall has been the norm primarily because it was a de-risking strategy. So if you de-risk using a, a waterfall approach and say, well, the more I know, the more I won't go beyond the regulations and the more likely it is for me to release my software, uh, you know, the idea of consumers and what they feel like about it, et cetera, just don't matter. What's happening, though, is that as the consumer grade, and let's talk about it in the most difficult areas. So think about a patient monitor and the amount of software and testing and hardware that goes into creating a patient monitor that sits inside a hospital. Mm -hmm. It took years. Uh, so any patient monitor would usually be in the lifespan of the hospital for seven to nine years. It took three to four years to build portions of it, et cetera. And this is, you know, simple things like your pulse oximetry, just finding out your, uh, uh, you know, glucose level, et cetera. Sure. Now, if you think about the enterprise world and how the enterprise software has been disrupted by consumer software, like Basecamp disrupting a Microsoft project, mm -hmm. not because Basecamp is better, but it's good enough. Mm -hmm. That piece right there, this is the thing that's going to help us most is that these small devices that we see working on the consumer side, like pretty pretty soon, I mean, you have an entire weather station on your Samsung devices today that we didn't have five years ago. Yeah. Same thing is going to happen with HealthKit and the future phones are going to have more and more of these uh, kinds of devices, which means at consumer scale, we'll be providing better chipsets, better integration components that the consumer side can use. So what will happen is that just like enterprise software was disrupted by consumer software, enterprise health IT, enterprise FDA regulated medical devices, enterprise pharmaceutical IT is going to be disrupted by consumer grade devices that are good enough and they're going to eke their way in and that's what's going to create the agility. It's really not going to be that, I mean, it might be one or two companies here and there that are big enough and recognize innovation and agile that will put it in but they're going to be disrupted out of their approach, not going to be uh, cajoled out of there. I mean, it's not sure, going to be yeah. that it's a, here, this is a good thing and your consumers matter. It's only when they see profits dropping and other areas, they're just going to buy some of those companies and build them in. So it's going to happen, but not happen in any much different way than in any other enterprise setting. And that's one thing we have sure. to remember is whether it's a doctor or a hospital, it's enterprise software we're talking about, mm -hmm. not not consumer grade, and that's why it takes a little bit longer to move from the agile to, uh, to from waterfall uh, to agile. Um, in addition to that, what other exciting things do you think are going to be disruptive in the next five to ten years? Yeah, I think the idea of uh, patient-generated healthcare data, the what so-called PGHD that mm -hmm. we've seen, is going to be the nexus uh, around what a lot of things are going to happen. So I'll talk to you about, you know, there, there are cases when pharmaceutical companies today, uh, you know, today any typical clinical trial that you might run for any complex piece of, uh, of uh, pharmaceutical, a new drug that's being done, you might have, you know, 8,000 
4,000, 5,000, 10,000. I mean, numbers are tiny. Mm -hmm. People test and understand side effects. You know, we think that the FDA, and obviously FDA does a great job in comparison to all other regulatory agencies, to keep our drugs safe. But imagine that drug safety for some of the most widely um, uh, prescribed drugs were done with a 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 person trial. Now imagine that that trial, what the kind of data that we captured for that trial can now easily be pulled in from millions of patient-generated health data records, what would that world look like, right? So that, to me, is the most exciting, is that there's going to be an abundance of data. What's going to be alarming is that, uh, and it is still alarming to me as somebody in the medical field, is most uh, health IT companies, most pharma uh, pharma IT companies, bio-IT companies, they think that that data is not trustable because it's coming from patients. Hmm. Because... For thousands of years, we've been tr- taught to not trust patient data, right? You ask a person sure. a question, you can't just trust it. You have to look at and say, what is your temperature? Right. Let me hit you on your knee and make sure that there's a reflex. I can't just trust you for it. Right, right. And what we're seeing is that it may take the next generation of doctors to come in and say, of course that's trustable. I can test sentiment analysis. Like, for example, there's a very cool study uh, that's being done to say, um, what is a mental health? Pro- what can mental health professionals do just by watching how people interact on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Well, on one side, people are like alarmed, saying, oh my God, that's crazy. But on another side, if patients, if your patients happen to give you access and make you friends, and they say, sure, you can watch me, why wouldn't we use that data? So there's a ton of consumer-generated, patient-generated health data that needs to come in to FDA-regulated uh, device uh, verification, FDA-regulated drug verifications, um, safety and efficacy checks. Uh, how do you know that the side effects that were uh, in a 4,000-person trial are not going to be different when you go to 4 million people? Right. We don't know. We need the, some of that data. So I'm most excited about that. In fact, uh, I think that the fact that we have a ton of this data over the next 10, 15, 20 years is is not disrupted by itself, but the, but the innovators that use that to displace some of the, what we call, uh, they're, they're a doctor friend of mine once, once told me um, that medicine is eminence-driven rather than evidence-driven, which is true. We don't have enough evidence uh, for a lot of things. But we say, hey, Dr. So-and-so from Harvard said this, so it must be right. true. I trained under Harvard. You trained under Johns Hopkins. So let's, you know, let's trust this. Well, of course, uh, if it, with enough data coming from the field, as we were, uh, just like, for example, Amazon doesn't ask its executives or its customers or its vendors, how should it sell stuff? It says, I'm going to put this out for sale and see what sells. Mm-hmm. I have so much data that I can tell my book suppliers better about what will sell than they can tell me. Yeah. That's going to happen in five or 10 or 15 years, but it may take a generational shift for us to trust that data and put them in business models and approaches. And this is where data scientists today, uh, data workers of any source, not just data scientists, but people consuming the data, pushing the data, should really keep an eye on that and say, how could they benefit from it or improve the uh, health IT uh, and pharma IT and bio IT universe because of it? Yeah, I'm as well very excited about you know wearables and patient-generated data. There's a part of me that really wants to have the chance to opt into studies, you know, some passive monitoring or some pharmacological study for which I happen to be qualified that I can just go to some website and say, approve, approve, you can grab all the data I have here if it'll benefit the research that's being conducted and which will long-term help me and, and the rest of humankind. But 
the flip side of that that I worry about is when we get, and it's just going to have to take once, we get one data disaster, that data gets de-anonymized or um, you know, someone gets hacked or something like that, and we lose a cultural trust for medical sharing of data. Um, so I think that the risk and the burden lies uh, widely across both you know, researchers, patients, and IT. Um, but where do you think we come together on that? And you know, what, what are the standards that need to be adopted to make sure that patients are able to contribute data that's useful while still uh, getting a, a sense of protection that maybe that data is not going to be sold to a third party like their car insurance provider and say, oh, you're a stressed out guy, we're going to raise your rates? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think what, we, what we're seeing now is that there's a level of sophistication in certain fields. Like today, we simply have organizational trust that the data that we give to our partners won't be shared. Mm -hmm. The problem is that those organizations, as much as they'd like to protect our data, don't really have the tools and technologies available. Standards aside, it's very difficult to do data provenance to figure out where did a piece of data come from. So we in the data science, data community, uh, in, in various capacities, have to say, if, if I care about privacy of data and if I care about making sure the data is trusted, I have to work on provenance. How can I carry data so I know about its, uh, uh, about its original data from wherever it comes from? Like, for example, in finance, mm -hmm. a dollar is a dollar. It doesn't really matter where it came from. But um, in, when you're tracking bank accounts, now it matters all of a sudden. In, in medicine, it's much, more, uh, it's much more granular and nuanced. You can say, I have a temperature. It was carried in Fahrenheit, but now I convert it to Celsius. What was the original? What did I convert it to? What were the original units and what were they converted into? That's provenance, knowing where something came from, what were the units of measure, and we're really not good at that in the data community today. So we, we talk about normalization, we talk about schemas, and we talk about how cool it would be to be able to do auto-discovery but if you don't get provenance right, you can never know where something came from. So that's, that's very, very important. Yeah. Second thing is discovery. Um, not sharing everything everywhere, federating in a way and allowing discovery to occur to say, I would like to discover who has this kind of data. So once you have good provenance, you've got the good structure, you've defined it well, metadata is there. And the good news is 80 or 90% of what we need is available in standards. The 10 or 20% on the provenance is, is still uh, open. But if you had federated discovery, then you wouldn't have to send data everywhere. Oh, yeah, you, really you'd leave it in places mm -hmm. uh, and say, okay, I trust this organization, so I'm just going to run a federated query to say, do you have Kyle's data? It returns yes, and email goes out to Kyle and say, hey, Kyle, looks like your data is at uh, Johns Hopkins. Would you mind uh, Harvard Medical getting a copy of it? And you say, no, of course not, because I trust both of them, and I hit the button. That kind of stuff just doesn't exist today. And yeah. the reason it doesn't exist isn't so much the technology, it's who's going to pay for this. Because when you're talking about one piece of data that's my business transaction sitting in my accounting system, I don't mind paying for that because nobody's asking me to share my accounting system right. with a bank, right? Now, all of a sudden, let's assume that the bank wanted to reach into your accounting system and say, hey, instead of you telling me and me doing reconciliation, why don't I just look into your accounting system, pull data out whenever uh, we have shared customers? Can you imagine how crazy that would sound? Uh -huh. like bank, I'm, in, I'm a Bank of America. I go to a hospital who has accounting records. If I could think that Bank of America could grab my data from the hospital, I'd be scared or vice versa. When we're talking about financial data, we never think about that. But think about it in healthcare. Multiple uh, hospitals are competitors of each other. 
how can we simply ask them to just share this data without knowing where things are coming from? So I think some level of data discovery with federation plus provenance gets the foundations in there so that when we think of doing like a Sparkle query or uh, a, uh, you know the distributed queries that we would do with RDF and other things in our in our in, in on the internet world, that works, right? RDF would work in the medical community. It would work really well, um, but everybody's afraid because. How do, why should I share this with my potential uh, competitor? I mean, there are two primary care physicians on the same block. Those aren't just two doctors sharing data. Those are two competitors asking for patients to come to each other. And that's the kind of stuff that we don't think about. We think of healthcare as needing to be pretty much, um, you know, free uh, as, as we might want it. Um, right. Not, you know, you take care of my medical problems for me. You take care of my healthcare records for me. Until we take ownership, until we take responsibility, this stuff is going to be really hard. Yeah. But that, that distributed federated infrastructure you described is really exciting to me and familiar to pretty much anyone who knows a little bit about big data, Hadoop file system, this sort of thing. It's right in line with the philosophies that are going on. How do we get there? Because as you laid out, I see the challenges, but I, I definitely hope that comes to fruition. Um, yes. Is that going to come from a consumer push or the an insurance push? Uh, where, where can... Where will that finally uh, start? I think the first place where it's going to come is as we see the business models changing. When we move from what's referred to as fee-for-service or FFS, as mm-hmm. like you go into a doctor, he sees you, you pay him 200 bucks, you get your task done, you pay them for the services that they are doing, everybody seems like they're a competitor, right? If my imaging service costs $500 to do an MRI, yours costs $400, I'm not going to share anything with you. But if it turns out we can do, and, and you, you heard me mention these accountable care organizations, this is one model that the government is experimenting with in what they refer to as a shared savings plan. And that is, if you and I got together, if I'm the doctor and you're the imaging supplier, why don't we get together and take ownership of the patient? I won't ask for an imaging study if you just did one yesterday, because you're going to send me the data immediately mm-hmm. instead of me having to call you up 10 times and say, could you send me the data? So when we see a business model which basically rewards data sharing, some of this will happen. Technically, all of us as technicians and engineers, we need to continue working on data provenance and RDF and and all these other cool things that we're working on. Mm -hmm. But foundationally, it's going to require a business shift in the same way that we saw, for example, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, as value-added networks started coming in, they started coming in because multiple businesses said, it's more valuable for me to share the data than it is for me to keep it to myself. That has yet to happen in healthcare. And, and you would think in healthcare it would happen first, right? Because right, hey, right. We're, yeah, this is all useful data. They haven't seen it, it's hard to do. So let's not, it's not like uh, they're, they're just sitting on their thumbs and, and they don't know what they're doing. It's hard. Right? The, mm-hmm. the, no other industry has the depth of information about me as a person, you as a patient, it's just mind-boggling the account of the amount of information. Anyone who says, "Well, they've worked in big data," if they've not spent any time in bioIT, like that example that I gave you right, right. Uh, with the with the with the brain, they they just don't know. They don't know what real big data is until they've worked in this area. That said, we're behind, right? Healthcare is behind in mm-hmm. it because our business models don't support support data sharing just yet. We haven't gotten to that level of sophistication. So, if you're wondering when is this going to happen? Let's promote more and more accountable care organizations. Any politicians that say, let's work on shared savings plans, let's work on making sure that data sharing is good business and good medicine, and then we'll see a a, a rapid migration because 
uh, money, um, uh, good technology will follow the money pretty much any day. Yeah, and that, that's definitely a platform I'd like to hear out of more uh, political candidates as well. Yeah. So uh, we covered, uh, or I mentioned earlier, your, uh, all three of your blogs, and I'll be sure to get those in the show notes as well. And I recommend readers go or listeners go check those out and become readers. Uh, also, the conference, I'll put in some links in reference to that in the show notes. Um, is there anything else, uh, any other good resources you'd recommend for people interested in the field? Yeah, I would say that uh, there is a lot of good bioinformatics and uh, other classes around health IT being given uh, in data science uh, circles. So you look at uh, Hopkins, uh, Stanford, Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, uh, UPenn, I believe, has some good ones. UPMC has some good ones. There there are a lot of uh, data science types of classes uh, and online, especially they're mostly free, that have a bioinformatics component start there because if you understand big data or think you do, and then you come into mm-hmm. the bioinformatics world in which you can see the volume and velocity is just so much greater. I mean, yeah. there's a there's a there's a customer we're working with in which they're working with 300 patients. Uh, the amount of data that we've already captured on 300 patients just for basic analysis is going to be roughly on the order of 90 to 100 terabytes. Wow. 300 patients, right? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be used for uh, spe- specific specialty area kinds of biomarker development and uh, reviews and other things. So it's just a different uh, class of problem, and we just need new guys. So definitely, as you're learning about data science, see if you can take the specialty courses around uh, bio and uh, pharma and pharmaceuticals and, and those areas. So you get the big learnings about big data, but you do it in a way that can help humanity. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fantastic opportunity for someone who's eager to get into those spaces. So Shahid, uh, I'd like to wind up my podcast by asking for two recommendations from my guests. The first I call the uh, benevolent recommendation, which is, it can be anything, a blog, a book, a website, a movie that you have, the, have no necessarily uh, relationship to, but think is of value and and might uh, recommend people check out. And the second, what I call the self-serving recommendation, which is something that directly benefits you and hopefully gets you some publicity and, and viewers and uh, for uh, your participation in, in the show. So if you wouldn't mind sharing two uh, recommendations. Absolutely, yeah. The, my, my first recommendation is I've been reading a lot of books on uh, the subject of leadership because that's really what I think we're lacking uh, in a lot of what we're doing in both medicine and in some cases in IT. So my first recommendation is I'm, I'm, I'm reading uh, four or five uh, books all together. So just if you go to Amazon, look on leadership books in general. And when you look at leadership, try and say to yourself, what can I do to change what's broken right now in healthcare? Healthcare is a huge industry, 2.3 trillion to 2.5 trillion dollars, mm-hmm. but it has a lot of nooks and crannies. When something is big, we often think, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. But what leadership shows us is that if you look at uh, a problem in a way that you're trying to solve for a purpose other than what your industry is, like you and I are in IT, Mm -hmm. if we look at it from the IT angle, that will create bad leadership because we're going to say, okay, we'll just create better tools that doctors can use. Instead, let's lead and say, what is the doctor's problem in understanding what they do that prevents them from using the tools that I create. That model of leadership and understanding how companies should be created and tools should be created, like if you're an open source, mm-hmm. don't just create the tool because it scratches an itch for you, but it scratches an itch in healthcare for the potential consumer. That's why we see open source being used a lot in our industry is they're all scratching our itches. Uh-huh. They're not scratching someone else's itches outside of our industry. Yeah. 
Um, so that, that I would say, just read a lot about leadership and focus on, um, on, on how you can help from the outside rather than the inside. Makes sense. Yeah, and, and the more benevolent one, uh, the less benevolent one, <laughs> I wouldn't say, uh, is, is you know, visiting to my, two of our sites, uh, Netspective.com. We are a company that focuses on uh, helping companies get started, building tools, technologies, et cetera. We ser- service medical, com- medical device companies. We service uh, data companies. We service health IT companies who are building their software and want to do it in a way that accommodates all the stuff that we talked about, next generation uh, patient-generated health data, next generation devices, how do you bring all of this in there? And the other, of course, lastly, is my blog at healthcareguy.com. Uh, I love getting uh, guest articles or other things. You can go to healthcareguy.com, click on request guest article. There's a little video of me that explains what are the kind of things that um, other entrepreneurs and other innovators and other engineers look for in, um, in their tools. And so my blog is one of those where I call a operationalizing uh, uh, trends or operationalizing the implications of trends uh, mm-hmm. blog. I like to be very, very pragmatic and I'd love to get you know people to say, hey, I'd love to jump in and here's how I solve this problem in, in healthcare or in another industry that might work in healthcare. Uh, so that's my, uh, that's my self-serving one. Yeah, uh, all great resources. Uh, well, this has been a, a great conversation for me, really informative and enriching. I'm sure my listeners are going to enjoy as well. Thanks again for coming on the show. I appreciate the uh, uh, invitation, and I look forward to attending in the future. Yeah, and best of luck with the upcoming conference. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Data Skeptic Podcast. For show notes or other information related to the show, please visit our website at www.dataskeptic.com. Follow us on Twitter at Dataskeptic. If you enjoyed the program, leave us an iTunes review and help others find us. 